0: Today uh, we'll be in uh, Joshua chapter 7, Uh, but there's a lot going on in in Joshua chapter 7, so I'm going to break it up across uh, two weeks. So this week I'll focus on the first 13 verses, which uh, begins in verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel, So immediately we know what this chapter is going to be about. God is angry because some person, Achan, uh, took things that were devoted to God. But the text actually says that Israel uh, broke faith, even though an individual, um, Achan was the culprit. So we'll get into why that is. Um, So in the bulletin, I titled this sermon, We Have Met the Enemy and They Are Us. Another apology. I misquoted that. It's a 1970 uh, quip from the comic strip Pogo. Supposed to say, uh, "We have met the enemy, and he is us." Um, He is overlooking his um, swamp, which is which is polluted. It was the anniversary. uh, It was the 1970 Earth Day, and he's overlooking his swamp. We have met the enemy, and he is us. But the sentiment. Uh, I think, applies uh, this morning. Sometimes uh, we are our own worst enemy. Sometimes, oftentimes, the Israeli people are their own worst enemy. And as we look at this morning's uh, passage, you know, fresh off the uh, complete uh, victory at Jericho, the people of Israel uh, suffer a humiliating defeat at Ai, which was a far smaller and less powerful city than Jericho. And although we learn uh, right away the cause of the defeat, uh, Joshua and the people are just perplexed at first. It, it, they don't... What just happened? Uh, and they need the Lord to reveal the cause to them. So let's... Um, uh, Joshua 7. Uh, I'm only going to go to one, uh, verse 13 this morning. But, there's that um, key word, as we know when we're studying the Bible, always pay attention after a but... Uh, the people of Israel uh, broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. The people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled from before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? He asked the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say... Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Praise God for, him, for his word. So, what's going on here at AI? You know, again, fresh off the great victory at Jericho. Joshua sends out some spies. You know, that's typical. It's what he did before. He makes an assessment and decides he needs about 3,000 men to to conquer this um, next strategic town. They they, um, proceed to attack and then boom, they're routed. Things go terribly wrong. The army is turned back. Uh, 36 men are killed. Nobody got killed at Jericho and they've just uh, suffered their uh, first defeat in the promised land. And nobody, Joshua or the people, it seems really knows the reason behind uh, their defeat. Except God, of course. So we notice in the passage that the uh, defeat results in two responses. Uh, One is the hearts of the people. The hearts of the people of Israel melted. means their courage failed and became as water. And then Joshua and the elders of Israel fall on their faces before the ark of the Lord wondering what just happened and, and why did it happen. It's, it's an interesting um, response that the people have because it's exactly the response the Canaanites had before, uh, before and after the crossing of the Jordan. If you remember, twice in chapters 2, before the Jordan and 5 after the crossing, Scripture tells us that the Canaanites' hearts melted at the news of what God had done on the behalf of the Is- Israelites. But now the tables have turned. It's, Israel, it's the Israelites whose hearts have melted. Uh, their courage has failed. And then, and then comes Joshua's response to the defeat. So as I said, along with the elders, Joshua has no idea what just happened. And he pleads with God, even complains. But before I get to uh, Joshua's um, pleading, I want to point out a few common misapplications of this passage. So several explanations are often preached as the reasons for the defeat at AI, such as self-confidence or lack of prayer. And that's there. It's true. You know, being a little overconfident and resting on the victory at Jericho, you know, Joshua perhaps you know, failed to take the time to get alone with the Lord, to seek his direction, to seek his strength. And at the very least, Israel was, was guilty of over, overestimating her own power and underestimating uh, the strength of the enemy. And all of us, I know at times, you know, we can confess that we have a tendency to rush off uh, without taking the time to draw near to the Lord, uh, seeking His wisdom, seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind, again, that when Joshua sent out those troops, He was unaware of Achan's sin or of God's anger. So you have to wonder if he had consulted the Lord uh, before making the plans, you know, that maybe he would have have learned of both of those things. So while Joshua and the people may have been overconfident, and yes, they should have consulted the Lord, that's not why they were defeated. Again, we learn from Joshua's plea. With the, the Lord, he doesn't know why. So Joshua pleads with God, asking, why did you bring us over this Jordan? Uh, give Jericho into our hands only to have us suffer this humiliating defeat. What was the point of that? We might as well have stayed back. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he's saying to the Lord. And, and you, you sort of feel for the guy. In his ignorance, he, he kind of throws up his hands. and He's like, what's going on here? And he says, oh Lord, what can I say? But then Joshua also wrongly suggests that the Lord has reversed his promise, the promise that God would not leave you or forsake you, and that the Lord would make of Israel a great nation. And those are serious allegations against the Lord. However, as Joshua continues, his allegations are tempered uh, by his concern for the Lord's reputation. Uh, once again, uh, Joshua blows off a little steam. You know, his complaints turn to repentance and concern for the Lord's name and the land and the Lord's glory. In verse 9, he says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of this defeat and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? He's concerned about the Lord's reputation. But... The real reason, the real reason that God gives for the defeat in verse 11 is that there is sin in the camp, sin among the people, which God finally reveals to Joshua. So you can imagine the shock uh, when Joshua learns this. He's their leader, and perhaps he feels responsible. Uh, Remember uh, back in chapter 6, before the fall of Jericho, uh, Joshua had commanded the people. He said, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into His treasury that Joshua commanded. But even here, God shows His mercy. In verses 11 through 12, after God tells Joshua to get up, you know, God again explains to Joshua in response to his pleas. He says, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. That's what Israel is guilty of. So, and that was exactly what was forbidden. And the immediate consequences of their sin, it says, therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand. They cannot stand before their enemies. They turned their backs from their enemies. That means they retreated. Because they, the Israelite people themselves, have become devoted for destruction. One of the soldiers, a man named Achan, who was involved in the siege of Jericho, he saw the riches of the city and decided to keep some of the things uh, for himself in spite of the command uh, forbidding the Israelites from doing so. So what did he steal? Uh, Later on uh, in the chapter, we'll go over this next week, he stole a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 uh, shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And by the way, there's at least four of the Ten Commandments broken right in this incident. Achan is guilty of offending the holy name of God. He's guilty of stealing. He's guilty of lying. And he's also guilty of coveting. Not bad for a day's work. But notice here that God doesn't just single out Achan. He actually says Israel has sinned rather than just Achan has sinned. He says, Israel has sinned. In verse 1, God identifies Achan as not an individual, but as part of a community. The passage, the, the verse says, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, and of the tribe of Judah. He's part of a community. So whatever else one member did, the whole body became responsible Israel was, was really only as strong as its weakest link, as its weakest member. And, and most of us, when, when we think of sin, we think about it individually. When, when you think about sin, you think, well, this is my life. It only affects me. But God here is dealing with the nation. He sees them as a corporate Body. God has called the nation of Israel to be His witness to the world. So we don't, we don't often think about uh, sin in terms of how it affects the corporate body of uh, believers. I mean, do you think of sin that way? Uh, that, that we're a body of believers and that if one member is sick, like Paul tells us in the New Testament, the whole body suffers because uh, we have, are part of uh, one body. And I know that's referring to sickness. You know, it's slightly different year. But in, in the New Testament, you have an issue that highlights this. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, he, he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, there is sin that is causing the Corinthians' gospel witness to suffer. And he says, I've heard, and it has been reported, that you've got a guy in your congregation who has taken his father's wife. Now, you, you, you're familiar with that story. And he says, even though I'm not present with you to judge this man and his action, and he condemns them, he, I mean, he condemns the entire church for tolerating it. And he says, I want you to get rid of him, and I want you to cast him out. I want you to give him over to Satan so that he might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about the scripture where it says, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin filters through and actually destroys the whole lot. And that's, that's what God's saying here. A little leaven spreads right through the whole nation. The pit principle applies to, to the body of believers as well. And we might think, well, that's not fair, but that's what's found in Scripture. In chapter 7, Scripture implicates all the Israelites in Achan's sin. So the notion that an individual's acts affect the whole group are found in a number of places in Scripture. A couple of examples. 2 Samuel 21. um, At the beginning of the chapter, the Lord, through David the king, sees to it that six of Saul's sons are executed due to Saul's previous transgressions against the Gibeonites. Acts 9.4. Jesus asks Saul of Tarsus, Why are you persecuting me? when Saul's actually persecuting Jesus' followers. In Colossians one twenty-four, the Apostle Paul is actually suffering himself for the sake of the Gospel so that others might be saved. It might seem unfair, but this, this doctrine is also familiar to us because it's the basis of the doctrine of man's original sin through Adam. But more than that, It's also the basis for justification of believers through Jesus Christ. For example, Paul concludes Romans chapter 5 with these words. He says, Therefore, one trespass by Adam led to condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So how many of you think that's unfair? It's not. It's not unfair. It's called mercy. It's called grace. If Christ wasn't obedient, if Christ's punishment on the cross on my behalf didn't satisfy God's justice, then I'd still be dead in my sin. So thank God that that doctrine is found in Scripture. Because I know, I know that I could never satisfy God's demands for holiness. And and neither can you. We have to uh, trust Christ. And this this issue of holiness in this passage is, is so serious that unless the people deal with the sin, deal with the leaven, they themselves will be devoted to destruction. That's pretty amazing. The, um, just like the Canaanites, devoted to destruction. God's chosen people devoted to destruction unless they deal with this. I mentioned before that God requires of His people the same holiness that He requires of the Canaanites. And the judgment is the same for both also devoted to destruction. God is not impartial when it comes to sin and when dealing with sin. That's why God's dealing with sin required the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ. In a sense, I was thinking about this, God had His own Son devoted to destruction on our behalf. I mean, praise God for that. And then God, I mean, uh, yeah, God says in verse 12, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. In the Old Testament, especially in Jericho, uh, as I mentioned last week, a devoted thing was something that was subject to what was called haram, Hebrew for utterly destroyed. We saw last week that Jericho was subjected to haram. And sometimes this is referred to as the ban. Jericho and the Canaanites were subject to the ban because of their uh, ongoing sin. Recall that Joshua was instructed by God to completely destroy Jericho, which he thought he did. God destroyed the walls, and, and the people burned the rest. In, in essence, the city was purified. Purified by fire. What, what was previously unholy became purified, became holy. Excuse me. Now, God commanded that certain things be set aside kept solely for him. All the valuable objects, like gold and silver, were to be dedicated to the Lord's treasury. This was apparently to be done as a kind of first fruits of the land. And it was also to cause people to trust in the Lord for future provision. Um, if, um, If Achan had just waited, he would have been able to loot all he wanted in A.I., because the, the Lord didn't um, prevent them from doing that for the rest of the conquest. It was just this for Jericho. It was, a, it was isolated incidents. So the implication is that those precious metals devoted to the Lord would be melted down and purified and thus made suitable for the Lord's uh, treasury. So they, they shouldn't take any of those accursed things. Those things that were associated with the, the demonic... Uh, pagan worship practices of of the Canaanites. Thus, Achan, in violating the ban, was guilty of a number of transgressions against God. Again, God in his mercy, he allows time, uh, uh, allows a time of consecration for the people in verse 13. In essence, it's a time for the culprit to come forward and confess and then, as we'll talk about next week, he lays out a process uh, by which the person will be identified. And we, you notice, uh, we'll notice next week that Achan only confesses after he's found out. He only says, Yeah, I did it. After they're in his tent, after the stuff has been dug up. He's like, Yeah, you got me. That's not, that's not repentance. God knew that Achan was the culprit, but the, the process of narrowing down the choices from verse 14, from tribe, then clan, then household, again, that, that vividly illustrates the community nature of Achan's sin. So exactly the same treatment the actual devoted things would receive would be the same Uh, the people would receive if they didn't uh, hand them over, if they didn't deal with it. The same judgment given to Jericho, the same judgment given to its inhabitants. Uh, If we go back to the first chapter, God has these words to say to Joshua and the people. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God is with you wherever you go. And then the people answered. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. It was a good start. It didn't last long. And Achan was there. Achan uh, may very well have made that same vow. But he gave in to that temptation uh, to steal. So why is sin in the camp? Such a big deal. Why is sin in the church, the the body of Christ, such an issue? I mean, we're all going to sin. We're not perfect. but Unconfessed sin, unrepentant, habitual sin, it has dire consequences for you. It has dire consequences for me, for your brother, for your sister, and especially for the Gospel. God said to Joshua in verse 11, Israel has sinned. And in verse 12, he continues, Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand against their enemies. Unconfessed and unrepentant sin means we cannot stand. It means we're weak. We're spiritually weak. Our our ability to serve the Lord, our ability to serve each other is weakened. It's compromised. It, It might even be totally ineffective. Ephesians four thirty says that sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And not only that, sin quenches the spirit. From First Thessalonians, and that's a great word. I'm, I'm familiar with that from uh, being a machinist and working with metals. You know, in order to temple temper the metal to harden it, and you get it red hot, and then you dip it in a bucket of cold water. The steam flying everywhere. You quench the metal. Instantly uh, cooling it and has something to do with stopping the molecules. Um, So we have this uh, capacity, the ability to be red hot for God through the Holy Spirit. But sin quenches it. Proverbs uh, 28.13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he doesn't leave it at that. He goes on and says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. And we obtain that mercy through Jesus Christ by abiding in Christ. John 15, 8 says that through abiding in Christ, the Father is glorified that you will bear much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. In Christ, we have the capacity to live victoriously for the Lord. You know, through any situation. I keep having to remind myself over and over of that. But the the ability to do so also depends on fellowship with Christ, our Lord and Savior. In and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the capacity, but that doesn't always translate into the ability unless we depend on Christ, unless we abide in Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So let's let's not be our own worst enemy. Instead of conceding that we have met the enemy and they are us, let us confidently say we have met the enemy and he has been defeated by Christ. Amen. Then, praise God.